Okay, we're here today with Dr. James Andrews at the Andrews Institute located in Gulf Breeze, Florida. Dr. Andrews is a longtime advocate for the athletic trainer and youth sports safety. He's treated a broad population of athletes and consults with the NFL, the Washington Commanders, Auburn University, Tampa Bay Rays, baseball, among many professional and well-known athletes. Welcome, Dr. Andrews. Well, thank you very much. Dr. Andrews, you've been a, a longtime proponent of athletes playing a variety of sports, especially with youth. What concerns are you seeing as well as advice you would provide for these athletes, parents, and coaches to vary their participation before they start specializing in sports? Well, the thing that we've recognized actually began about year 2000. And at that point, I have five examining rooms uh, for new patients on Monday morning, for example. And all of a sudden, I was going from one room to the next with a new patient listening to their history and seeing what's wrong with them. And all of a sudden, all five examining rooms were filled up with athletes 15, 16, 17 years of age with adult-type sports injuries, shoulder and elbow mainly. And I started trying to decide what in the world is going on with my practice. I'm not a pediatrician. That's when I began to notice the fact that we had a change in, in, in prevalence of injuries in youth sports. Uh, so we start tracking those injury rights through our foundation in Birmingham, the American Sports Medicine Institute. And what we found out, along with working now with our foundation in, in Gulf Breeze, Florida, uh, of the Andrews Sports Medicine uh, Research and Education Foundation, is that there's been about a tenfold increase in injuries in youth sports in the United States in the last 20 years. Uh, and the two big things that we've noticed to be the real risk factors is uh, year-round sports and playing one sport all year round uh, and not special and specializing in, in sports with what we call specialization mm-hmm. and professionalism. Professionalism now means training these young kids like they're professional athletes and their body's not ready for that intense training. Parents mean well. They think more is better. Actually, what they're doing is they're running the, the chances of that kid moving up the ladder and really being a, a full-time athlete at some point in his career. Right. I saw some statistic, I think, in one of our speakers today, uh, just a just a large number of athletes having the uh, elbow reconstruction, Tommy John, that type of thing. Well, we, we, we know the, the statistics with that. When I first started back, and as, as I said, in year 2000, I was doing about eight or nine high school Tommy Johns a year, which was just an occasional one. I was doing a lot more of professional athletes at, at that point, obviously. At this point, though, the whole thing is turned upside down, where the largest number of ones that we're seeing across the country are in the high school and younger age group, and it, it's actually taken over in numbers greater than the professional athletes. Mm. And that's, that's, that's happened in the last 20 years, and it's just, it's, it's just a, a shame, to be honest with you, that we've let that happen. Right. Well, we're here at a football conference as we speak, and so tell me about what are some of your concerns from an orthopedic surgeon standpoint uh, with with football and these other collision sports that you're seeing today. Well, you know, football is king in this part of the country. So <laughs> That's I right. Can't say much. Yeah. yeah. Uh, the question that that you should answer with that is, I've got twelve grandkids. Uh, would I let my grandson? Uh, I've got one in the sixth grade and one in the seventh grade. Would I let him play contact? Football. I, I have to be honest with you. I would, I would let them play what they want to do. I wouldn't tell them they couldn't play football. Mm-hmm. But I would want to make sure that they had the right coach 
They had the right protective gear. They had the right preseason training and that the coach followed the rules. And also they had, when they played football, they had good referees mm-hmm. in practice, practice games and in games to make sure the rules were followed. Right. And if you do that and you teach them to tackle with the head up, which we all propose now, then football is not the safest sport in the world, but uh, there are a lot of things that they could do that were worse than being on a practice field or being coached as a, in a team effort. If they're out doing something else, the, the, the injury rates and the problems are probably greater than playing football. So uh, I'm not saying that's the safest sport, but uh, we're not going to do away with football in, in any time in the South at this point that I can see. That's right. And I think one thing you would add to that uh, very strongly is uh, a certified athletic trainer because you wouldn't send your kids to the pool without a lifeguard. Why send them to collision sports without a good certified athletic trainer there? Let me just add to that, too. You know, every every uh, a school that's playing football without an athletic trainer should not play football. Mm-hmm. They shouldn't they shouldn't play any sports. If you if you go play sports in, in high school or younger, you've got to have an athletic trainer. But Here's the other thing that we're working on. Of course, we've been pushing for athletic trainers in all public high schools in the United States ever since I've been in orthopedics. Mm-hmm. But what we have been able to do in the state of Alabama, for example, uh, is the, so what we call the Coach Safely Act. And that's uh, a foundation that I started. And it mandates that all youth coaches, for example, have to be accredited in prevention of injuries and recognition of, of sports medicine type injuries, mm-hmm. concussions, et cetera, basic first aid. So that law was passed in the state of Alabama in 2018, and it's a state law now. They have to take an Internet test that we have provided them through my foundations that we put together. They have to take that Internet test and they have to pass it before they can actually coach. You realize I'm talking about youth coaches uh, coaching kids 14 years of age and younger. And, you know, those coaches are usually the dads mm-hmm. or are people that mean well but have no, absolutely no medical knowledge about how to recognize a concussion or any injuries. The thing they don't realize is there's liability on their part to coach those kids and not know what they're really doing. A kid gets playing basketball, a sixth-grade kid, he has a concussion. The coach puts him back in the game, doesn't know the difference. The kid has a second concussion and dies. Correct. And so it can be terrible. Mm-hmm. So we're, we're mandating that, and now we're working on that in, in all of the uh, southeastern conference states, including mm-hmm. Florida, okay. Georgia, Texas. Uh, and eventually we think that we're going to be able to pass the, that type of rule to mandate accreditation for youth coaches in all 50 states. So maybe that will help. Very good. So what's the name of that program again? It's called the Coach Safely Foundation. Coach Safely Foundation. Coach Safely Foundation, or is coaching these kids with safety as a number one factor, mm-hmm. not winning, but exactly. safety. So parents and coaches are hopefully concerned about youth sports safety, but make compromises to get an edge. When do you, when do you believe Dr. Andrews is a good age to beginning these possible collision sports like football, soccer, hockey, et cetera, and what comfort or advice can you provide to parents in this regards? Well, I can tell you that there's some emphasis now amongst football programs in our local high schools for the, the coaches to actually begin younger and younger, getting these young young kids involved in tackle football as young as five and, and six years of age. 
I know that's happened in one of the communities that I live in. Letters were sent out to the parents prior to the, the summer months trying to, to get the parents to sign their young boys up for contact football. And the reason they're doing that is that they're, they're, they're seeing that if they don't sign them up at, a, at an early age and get them playing, that they're getting involved in other sports. And then when they get to junior high and high school, they won't have enough kids playing football to have a team. So they're worried about the, the, the lack of, of uh, kids playing football as they get into high school. And I think that's ridiculous to have anybody playing t- contact football at that early age. I'm talking about when they're five or six, seven, eight years of age. Uh, there's plenty of time to, to learn to play tackle football. And I think what's happening now, which is semi-reasonable, is that they're in the sixth grade before they actually begin contact football. And that's plenty, plenty young enough to get them involved. Uh, of course, one of the things we need to make sure is that they're doing multiple sports. They're not concentrating on football. By the way, football is not one of the sports they really concentrate year-round on because football is classically not played year-round. Now we've got a problem with that, though. Now we've got spring USFL football, so it's, they're trying to play it year-round. But in, in high school, it's not a year-round sport. Any advice on how we can change some of the culture in sports, do you think, from uh... – well, this is the way I always did it. When I had a concussion, all I did was shake it off or to a more safety-minded perspective without being labeled as soft. Well, you're talking about changing the culture of, of sports and of youth sports in general. And uh, we've done some a national questionnaire on that with Johnson & Johnson and uh, Safe Sports USA. And we found out a lot by the questionnaire, but we did not find out how we could change it. The questionnaire told us that, number one, the the parents thought that their youth coaches were certified in recognition of, of, of youth sports injuries, but they really weren't. We also found out that coaches are quite often pressured by parents to put their kid back into a game, uh, when they know they shouldn't. Mm -hmm. So we've got both sides of the coin, coaches, and parents pointing fingers at each other. And we've got kids saying that they that they want to play more than one sport. The way that the sports are set up, they don't have the opportunity to play more than one sport. So they're frustrated, and a lot of times they drop out because they're burnt out from trying to do what their parents want them to do, and that is play baseball year-round, for example. So it's, it's, it's a problem. Changing the culture of youth sports is something we hadn't been able to come up with a plan that would really work, to be honest with you. So let's shift over to baseball for just a minute, because overuse injuries in sports seem to be at an epidemic level. And uh, so what kind of guidelines or advice would you give to uh, help us in some way reduce these overuse injuries? You've hit on that already a little bit. Well, number one, make sure if your kid's playing in a youth sport, playing in a Pacific youth sport league, make sure that they follow the guidelines of uh, that related to pitch count. I was on the, the uh, board of Little Lake International for like 12 years. And it's about 10 years ago, the, the Little League board to adopt pitch count rules, youth sports that Little League promote. The problem is at that point, we had a meeting uh, through USA Baseball of all the, uh, of the different youth sport, and there were 25 of them. First time they'd ever met together. And they had different rules, different length of, of, of pitching mound to home plate. Uh, they had no pitch count rules. 
And so it's been a real mess trying to get that organized. We then worked with USA Baseball to, uh, that I was on their research committee, and we, we started what we call the uh, Pitch Smart program. The Pitch Smart program adopted the rules that I developed through USA Baseball when I was on their board, and we then copied for Little League International. They adopted those rules, the same pitch count rules for Pitch Smart. A lot of the youth leagues now have adopted the Pitch Smart rules and the Pitch Smart program to full accreditation. And if they're doing so, then there's pitch count rules that they have to follow. So for parents, if your kid's playing on a youth baseball league, make sure they're part of the Pitch Smart program. That means that they're pitching, they can only pitch so many uh, days uh, with so many, uh, without with rest between. Uh, they can pitch only so many uh, pitches. You can't go by innings pitch, by the way. you got to go by number of pitches. Mm-hmm. So they follow the Pitch Smart rules, your kid's much safer. And As a matter of fact, I would recommend if, if, uh, if you've got a youth league, that's not following the pitch smart rules, which was propagated by USA Baseball uh, and by uh, Major League Baseball, professional baseball, uh, then I would not let my kid play on that youth, in that particular youth league. The other thing is you got to watch showcases because mm-hmm. they have them in de- November, December. They have them pitch as, as hard as they can throw for so many pitches without warming up. They're not in shape. Those showcases are very difficult. Uh, as far as prevention of injuries is concerned. So showcases are very – you've got to be careful about what showcase you send your kid to. Uh, don't let them play in two leagues at the same time. Don't let them play both pitcher and catcher at the same time, switching from one to the other. God, goodness sakes, count their pitches yourself and, and tell the coach that, hey, after they get to a certain pitch count, they have to come out. So those rules are all out there if they'll follow them. And the thing is, as you've said – the rules are there, the guidelines are there, and the research is there Absolutely. to help people to know what is a safe way. And athletic trainers and physicians are not there to pull people out, but to protect these kids and save you a lot of pain and suffering in the future from overuse type injuries if you'll just follow the follow the direction, so to speak. Let me give you an example of that. Sure. A lot of times parents are raising cane with the coach because they took them out after so many pitches. And, and they had a, a perfect game going on, and they are livid about it. Let me t- give you an example. I was covering a high school football game a few years ago, uh, high school on the sidelines, and this little sophomore in high school who was playing defensive back had a concussion. Had a concussion. Had, had a concussion. Out of the game, we didn't have a place to go take him like we would if he was a college player, but we did take him out. We set him on the bench. We examined him, did all the rules, and told him that he was out. He had a significant concussion. All of a sudden, over the fence, I heard all of, of this noise going on. And I turned around, and it was a, a mother and a dad, two, a, a parent, two parents. And they were hollering and screaming at me and our athletic trainer about why we took their son out of the game. Put that Nothing wrong with him. What what'd you take him out for? So we went to the fence and started talking to him. And here's the quiz. What professions do you think they were in? They were both neurologists. Oh my goodness! And they were raising hell about us taking him out and not letting him go back in after a concussion. So that's the mentality that we have to deal with out there. And the parents get, you know, they they get all in, caught up in a in a competition of a sport, and they and they make bad decisions. Mm-hmm. Coaches can do the same thing. And if you're not careful as a doctor, you become a cheerleader, and you can make bad decisions too. 
Exactly. So you have to do what's best for the player. Anyway, we got through that, but that was the most unique situation I believe I've ever been in. Right. It, it's, it, it is amazing because I'll share one quick story there too. The athlete came out, said that, uh, he, he got examined by the physician. He was exhibiting signs and symptoms of a concussion. Well, he was irritated. He was angry. He was frustrated, which are normal and which are signs of a concussion, yeah. the irritability. So anyway, he was upset. Then the parent came down. The parent got all over the physician. And about five minutes later, the kid finally said, you know, I don't really feel so good. I can't see very good. These lights are bothering me. The sound is bothering me. You know, maybe you're right, doc. You know, and then the parent said, okay, he's out for sure. And not that we needed the parent's uh, authority to do that because it was a medical decision. But it, but sometimes it takes drastic things or it takes everybody to calm down and then really see, hey, this really is something that's very serious. That's the disadvantage of having to do all this at a high school game on a bench without having a, a quiet place to take them. And so you can examine them and take care of them. You've got everybody watching you. Exactly. All right. Just a couple more questions here. Um, too many athletes focus on what a physician used to call uh, their mirror muscles. They're just the muscles they can see and they want to be great throwers. You know, they don't focus on the muscles in their in their backside of their back, their shoulders and that. So what kind of advice and guidance could you provide to a developing athlete to focus more on their core muscles, their total body strength, as well as their posterior muscles? If you're talking about a, a, a young thrower, they mm -hmm. have to realize that their power begins at the interface of their foot with the turf. It then goes up the, to chain up the leg. The, the legs are, are, are where, where most of the power is coming from, and then it's transferred to the core, transferred to the lower back, the upper back, and then to the to the back muscles that control your scapular rotation. Those muscles are in the back of the shoulder. That's why when you examine a, a young thrower, you don't start by looking at the front of them. You start by looking at the back of them. Mm -hmm. Those are the muscles you have to have to work on for stabilization of the scapula because to be able to get the arm in a because to get the arm in a throwing position, the scapula's got to be stable in retraction. Mm -hmm. And if they don't have good stable stability in the back, they can't get the arm up without creating shoulder and arm problems. So the back muscles are important. The kid that wants to look good at the beach and doing a lot of bench pressing, <laughs> trying to get his pecs big and strong, not going to be a good baseball pitcher. Right. Definitely. Well, thank you. This has been great, uh, Dr. Andrews. Would Any final wisdom you'd like to share with coaches, athletes, and parents? Uh, if, if, if we talk about risk factors in baseball specifically, there are two things I would like to make sure parents understand. Uh Actually, there's three or four risk factors that, that I see all the time. Number one is playing baseball year-round. That's number one. Number two is trying to develop high velocity. Uh, kids are trying to overthrow with velocity the tensile properties of their Tommy John's ligament. They're trying to match 90 miles per hour when they're 16 years old. And their ligament at that age group redlines at about 80 miles per hour, maybe 85. If they're throwing 90, they're suspect to tear that ligament at every throw. Uh, baseball is a developmental sport. That ligament gets stronger as they get older and it really matures in its ultimate strength uh, at about age 26. So trying to go after high velocity, big problem today. The thing is, so that parents understand what I'm talking about, if they throw with, with high velocity associated with fatigue, those two things, mm -hmm. fatigue and velocity, meaning throwing too many pitches in a game, too many pitches in a season, too many pitches in a year. 
That's the fatigue I'm talking about. There's a 36 to 1 times chance of them injuring their throwing shoulder and elbow. That's 3,600% increase in the chance of injury if they throw with fatigue and high velocity uh, as a young baseball pitcher. You would think those statistics, parents would understand what they have to do relative to a pitch count and not playing year-round baseball. So those are the things that I would recommend to them. There are two things you should not do. Number one is you should not do weighted ball programs in high school with a young kid because they're not ready to do that. And the people that are teaching them how to do weighted ball programs are not knowledgeable enough how to do it safely. Young kids should not be involved in a weighted ball program. The other thing they shouldn't do, they shouldn't do long toss, meaning throwing a baseball as hard as they can 250, 300 feet. They're not made for that at that age group. So long toss and weighted balls are two no-nos. If you want your kid hurt, shoulder and elbow or both, put them in those two different situations trying to improve their velocity. And that's what parents are doing nowadays. Then they're coming in with significant adult-type baseball injuries to the shoulder and predominantly to the elbow. This was a comment uh, read the other day where a reporter and a baseball parent stated, in professional baseball, many throw in the 80s and are very successful. But in high school, you better throw in the mid-90s just to get a sniff from the scouts. And that's what people believe. But what you're saying and what we're learning is it's not how hard you throw and how fast you throw, but your accuracy. And it's a developmental sport, as you said yes, very clearly. Thank Aaron with Atlanta Braves. He was the minor league director, and I was his orthopedist. He was adamant about learning how to, to pitch, what he called pitch, which means place the baseball. Mm-hmm. And you, if you remember back in those days, they were bringing some of the minor league players up with the Braves who were very successful. Mm-hmm. You can name every three or four of them that were all pros, uh, all stars, and did not throw 95 miles an hour, but they knew how to pitch and knew how to mix it up, and they were very successful. Nowadays, 90 to get into college, almost 100 to get into the pros, and they throw the, the, that high velocity every pitch, uh, which is they're just looking for an injury. How do we get a, around that? That's that, We've changed that philosophy. Uh, we've got a, a, a big battle in front of us. I'm not sure that we're going to change that, but that is the exact problem as you read it. Right. Well, thank you very much, Dr. Andrews. This has been very, very helpful. Appreciate your time. And we've been speaking with Dr. James Andrews of the Andrews Institute. So keep them safe out there. Thank you. Thank you for joining us today on the Youth Sports Safety Update presented by the Jacksonville Sports Medicine Program. Please learn more at jaxsmp.com and you can see more about Dr. Andrews in our show notes. Thank you very much. Have a great day.